As a church, we are known for being awkward. Not necessarily our church, uh, but the church in general is known for being awkward. And it's something we have to take seriously because the awkwardness of church, the culture of church, is kind of stiff-arming the world out there, saying in some respects, probably unintentionally, we don't want you here. Because of the way we are, we are unwelcoming. And uh, one of the things that makes us unwelcoming is that fake happy syndrome. And again, I'm not talking about Rancho necessarily, but last week we talked about fake happy. Here you have to put on a smile, right? You're not feeling like smiling, but you put it on because at church you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to be fine. You're supposed to be good. Well, last week we addressed that. We addressed that from a, a biblical point of view and a chemical point of view that God wired us as chemical creatures as well. And what we feel is a chemical reaction and how the scripture talks about that and how when things get very serious for people and it could be in a, in a moment of emotional crisis or it could be chronic emotional strongholds of uh, depression, anxiety, guilt, or shame, that there is help. There's help when a community is honest. There's help when a community is tight relation, relationally. And there's also help professionally with therapy and medicines that God gave us the freedom to be able to help people with. So that was Fake Happy. It has had a lot of impact on a lot of lives. I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to check it out, even share it. Uh, it has helped a lot of people. Today, we're going to talk about mindlessness. There's an awkwardness in church of mindlessness. Uh, whose skull is that? Homer Simpson. Our traditional service had a little trouble identifying that. Uh, all the women said, that's my husband, I'm sure. But... <laughs> But when it comes to the Christian faith, we can be awkwardly mindless. The world out there is, is just full of incredible ideas and a, and a whole marketplace of ideas. And for all of us, when we're engaged in the world, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, our families, we use our brains in powerful ways. Yet when it comes to church, we oftentimes shut our brains off. People don't want to shut their brains off, even at church. They don't want to have to believe in fairy tales or myths. They don't want to have to believe in things that have already been unproven, but religious leaders keep saying. People don't want to blindly believe what they're told by religious leaders. That's not the kind of people we're designed to be, just mindlessly nodding our heads to what people say. We want to be engaged in a conversation. People want to be honest with their questions and with their doubts. They don't want to just have to comply. Everyone has a faith of some sort. Everyone believes in things that they can't prove. Everyone has a faith. But when it comes to our faith journey, we want to be reasonable. We want to be reasonable. And so when the church kind of comes across as unreasonable or, or mindless, not embracing the, the full journey of the mind, we're stiff-arming the world, essentially saying, you're not welcome here. We don't want you. And if you came, you wouldn't like it. We want to be mindful, not mindless. There are six reasons why people don't come to church. Six reasons. This is studied by the Pew Research Institute, George Barn and David Kinneman, uh, the Brookings Institute. There's six reasons why people don't come to church. Unthinking, shallow, anti-science, infighting, judgmental, and exclusive. Welcome to Sunday mornings. Three of those are about the mind. We don't want to engage the mind. We want to keep it shallow. And, and a lot of the Christian world says, you know, science is out to get us, right? Science is out to disprove the Bible. So for a church to walk a journey of thoughtfulness, it will also be a journey towards opening our doors to the world to come in and enjoy God, enjoy God's grace, get to know God through his word and through one another in a journey of discovery, a thoughtful journey of discovery, not mindless and rote indoctrination. Researcher George Barna says this. He says, half of young adults say that church is not a place that allows them to think through their faith. They do not feel safe admitting that sometimes Christianity does not make sense to them. People have questions. People have doubts. People want to, to, to engage in a community that will help them discover faith. 
help them discover the truths that they can rest their lives on. But as long as the church has a mindless culture, it's not a welcoming place for people who want to think through life and think through faith. So the question of the day is, do I have to turn off my brain to become a Christian? I wish that was easier to answer, but in many respects, the answer is, well, yeah, you got to turn off your brain because we don't do that here. I'm, I'm very proud of Rancho. I believe we are a thoughtful learning community, and, and that's increasingly true here, and I absolutely love it. For a lot of places, it's just not quite there yet. And in order to participate in a particular community of faith, you've got to shut off the brain, shut off reasons, shut off doubt, shut off questions, sit there and nod your head to religious leaders. That's just not what the world is about today. Now, historically, the church has many bright spots of thinking very deeply together. In fact, the church was founded as a learning community. The church really at its foundation is a learning community. We see that in the early ministry of Jesus. The very first ministry of Jesus was when he was 12. You find this in the last half of Luke chapter 2. When Jesus was 12 years old, uh, he separates from his parents during a big feast holiday, and, and, and he doesn't go behind the shed and do some bad stuff. He goes to church, and he basically is in the temple, and he's having a reasoned dialogue with the intellectual elite of the time. These are the community's top minds, the top legal minds. And here is Jesus as a 12-year-old engaged in conversation. He's learning from them and he's giving wisdom back. They were, according to Luke 2, amazed at this young man. Now, keep in mind, he's cheating. He's the son of God. So he got a little, little, little leg up there, right? But the point is, the ministry of Jesus is about a thinking, learning community. And then Jesus puts together his disciples. He puts together first the 12, then the 70, then the 120, then hundreds, then thousands of people. All of it is a learning community. Somebody had way too much time on their hands and they counted how many questions Jesus asks and how many questions Jesus answers. He actually asks more questions than he answers. Why? Because Jesus understands that, that we're to engage the mind, we're to engage a community that learns together, discovers together, and walks together a journey towards truth. In Acts chapter 4, the church is brand new. Jesus had died, rose from the dead. He empowers his, his church to begin expanding, right? Expanding the gospel, the good news, the message, expanding the cause of Christ. And so the first sermons that go out in Acts chapter 4 is Peter engaged with the intellectually elite in Jerusalem. Then by Acts chapter 13, this great church planter, the Apostle Paul, is out to the areas of Asia Minor, from Corinth to Thessalonica to Athens. Paul is discussing in every city he plants a church, discussing the faith with the intellectual leaders of each city. Acts chapter 19, verse 9 says this, that Paul had discussions daily in the lecture halls. Keep in mind, he's in a Greek culture. Greek culture was founded on Greek philosophy, including Socrates. Uh, who invented, I suppose, the Socratic method of learning together through asking and answering questions. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. They built great halls for discussion. So he goes in those halls. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's powerful. He was engaging in a learning community, both in the Hebrew culture and in the Greek culture. It's also important to understand that this learning community is not just about Bible study. Now, this may shock some of you. So some people think that discovering truth about God is only through his word. Let me tell you, the Bible says truth about God is not just found in the word. Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm 19, 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. 
They have no speech. The cosmos, the heavens, nature has no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. God's word speaks of the truth of God. God's creation speaks of the truth of God. So this learning community isn't just about Bible study. That's very important, but it's about a journey towards truth. Certainly that's through God's word. And certainly that's through God's creation. We want to embrace it all. We're to be a learning community. The church has also had a wonderful relationship historically with science most of the time. The church and science has had, in spots, a very good relationship. In fact, the church in the Middle Ages was the leading sponsor and leading financier of the sciences. The church would raise up intellects to be engaged in the sciences. This is when science was just percolating up. And the thought was, if, if we can engage the sciences with the top minds, we'll learn more about God himself. Cathedrals were designed. These are these middle-aged cathedrals. They were designed not just for places of worship, but they were designed for the study of astronomy, a, stu a study of the cosmos. So in these great cathedrals are rooms of astronomy. Some people have asked, what's that white building out there? Some said, is that a restroom? That's a funky restroom if it is. It's an observatory. It's a Rancho Christian Observatory. We think it's the only one of its kind in Southern, in Southern California. It's embedded in uh, Rancho Christian. A grand opening will happen here pretty soon. But it, you, can, you can't separate the study of, of science and the study of the Bible because it's all a study of God. It's all a study of God. The Christian faith actually compelled Copernicus and Kepler to study our solar system and discover that it's actually a series of planets revolving around the sun. The Christian faith compelled Galileo to study nature uh, and he is known now as the father of physics, the father of the scientific method. Some call him the father of science itself. He was compelled by his Christian faith to study science. The Christian faith even compelled Charles Darwin to study biology. Later, he struggled in his faith because he saw the suffering in, in, in biology, the suffering of life, but he remained in leadership in his local church, even while he struggled privately with his faith. And so from the time of Copernicus to Darwin to this very day, Scientific discovery was moving faster than the church could change its doctrine. Up until about 600 years ago, science and the church moved at the same pace. So they were discovering together. At the time of Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and even on to Charles Darwin and beyond, the, the pace of scientific discovery has vastly outpaced the, the willingness of the church to change its doctrine. As a result, there's this, there's this separation. There's been this separation so the church famously persecuted Galileo for his discoveries that they thought went against the teaching of the Bible, but actually went against the tradition of the church. As we talk about Christian thoughtfulness and the Christian mind, this is so important. The Catholic church persecuted Galileo for his interpretation of the cosmos that didn't align with the, interpreta the interpretation of the scripture. 200 years later, the church apologizes to Galileo. I'm not sure it meant a lot then. You know, it gives him a pardon. 200 years later, they caught up. Is it possible that still today some of the church traditions are not quite aligned with scientific discovery? It's possible, very possible. But the church historically has had, at times, a great relationship with science. What if we had a great relationship again? How about the church and philosophy? The church has historically had a great relationship with philosophy. In fact, um, the first church philosopher was St. Augustine. And St. Augustine, who I, I love his writings, very raw and honest writings, uh, he was a bishop in northern Africa, and he developed a philosophy of grace being the foundation of human freedom. Incredible blending of philosophy and church doctrine. 
Thomas Aquinas, probably the most famous Christian philosopher of the 13th century. He shaped Western thinking based on the premise that reason is founded in thinking and he synthesized the, the mind with Christian thought, uh, Aristotelian uh, philosophy with Christian, the Christian worldview and essentially created Western thinking. 18th century Immanuel Kant, lifelong Christian, stressed morality as a product of reason, not just moral dictum from God, but a product of reason. We can think through morality, right and wrong, good and bad, based on, based on human reason and evidence. Soren Kierkegaard, the first existential philosopher prioritizing human reality over subject or idealistic thinking, and he based his existential thinking on the foundation of Christian love and uh, resisted uh, Christianity and the state merging. Incredible contributions to human thought from Christian philosophers. How about the church and education? The church and education has an incredible history of, of embracing each other and realizing that, that the church and education are meant to be aligned. In fact, in early America, we see this most explicitly uh, founded by the pilgrims and Puritans that had a high value of education. So they started, one of the first things they did was start churches and start schools. And they, they shared the same worldview, the same basic gospel foundation on who God is and who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. But upon that foundation, they built incredible educational institutions, including, you might have heard of these, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, Columbia, Wims and Records, and Brown University, the Ivy League, founded by this puritanistic biblical mandate to value education and to raise up the best and the brightest men and women to engage this culture. As a little sidebar, uh, Rancho Christian is based on that sort of puritanistic thread. We, we do not do drill and kill. It's not just compliant children being lectured by adults and spitting back, you know, what they had, had heard. That's drill and kill. It's kind of, you know, uh, old school. It's actually kind of new school, and it's just not quite in line, I think, with what real education is. It's a school that is, that is founded on the truth of the gospel, but it's a learning community. You will have teachers asking questions. You will have students wrestling, being very honest where they doubt, honest where they might believe something that's not quite aligned with Christian orthodoxy. And that community is what really creates a sense of education, learning together towards the discovery of truth. The Christian faith once embraced the sciences. The Christian, the Christian community once embraced philosophy. The Christian community once embraced education. It's not so true anymore. Something happened 100 years ago that created quite a schism between the church and these thinking disciplines. J.P. Moreland was my uh, philosophy professor in college, and he wrote a ton of books on Christian thinking. You could buy any J.P. Moreland book right now, and you will be thrilled that you did. He has a book on the Christian mind, kind of rediscovering the Christian mind. And he says this about what happened 100 years ago. He says, two things happened. Number one, the legacy of the pilgrims and Puritans waned. There's no longer this drive in the church towards the sciences, towards philosophy, towards education. That has waned. It's become a smaller world now. It's become a purely spiritual Christian doctrine world. The second thing that happened was revival movements emerged from which the evangelical church has never fully recovered. About 100 years ago, 120 years ago, late 19th, early 20th century, there were these revivals that were sweeping the West. These are street preachers. They weren't in their high church denominational you know, regalia, uh, which was also alienating people. These street preachers went to the streets and they preached the message of Jesus, the message of love, 
um, the message of grace, which is all fine, but it was very emotionalized. So hundreds of thousands of people came to faith through an emotional experience. I feel the love of God. I feel the love of Christ. I feel his presence. I'm going to place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And, and my relationship with him is based on emotion. Well, what that does is it separates the emotion from the mind. And so evangelical Christianity for the last 100, 120 years has, has essentially fled from the mind into creating emotional experiences. Here's what historian George Martson says about revivalism. A lifelong journey of thoughtful discovery was abandoned by the church and personal experience began defining truth. I feel it's right, so it's right. And this is how a lot of people, particularly in religious environments, think of truth. I feel it's right, so it's right. I was taught these things when I was in Sunday school and there's nothing quite like the formative years to kind of burn into our soul what we think is true. And so we want to keep going to churches that tell us the same thing we learned in our formative years because it's a comfortable space for us. But when we go into a religious environment and somebody says something that doesn't align with our formative years, we, we get frustrated, understandably, because we want sameness when it comes to our faith. So when somebody challenges us, it's very uncomfortable. We want to move to where it feels comfortable. And where it feels comfortable, we will believe that is true. Here's what the proverb says about this. Zeal without knowledge isn't good. I love when the Bible is just plain language. If we're passionate about something, but it's not based on knowledge and the intellect, it's not good. Why? How much more will hasty feet miss the way? I love that analogy, hasty feet. We believe this is right. It feels right. So I'm going to go to what feels right. Ooh, this feels good. It feels good. It feels good. Then bam, that ain't good. I mean, let's, let's just take this to, to relationship. You know, I'm not really feeling it with my spouse. Ooh, this new relationship feels good, feels good, feels good. Must be right. Ooh, feels so right. It's so wrong, right? We do this with what we believe, what we think is true. It feels true because we were raised in that truth. It feels true because it resonates with where I am right now. But if it's not based on, on thinking, if it's not based on the intellect, we might run into something that is, in fact, very untrue and sometimes even harmful. This is what's happened over the last hundred years. There's been this divide between the, the, the secular over there and the sacred. What's happened is the church has accused the world of, of wrong, and the church has separated itself from the world because we've distanced ourselves from the, the disciplined thinking through life and through faith. And so the church has accused the world. In fact, over the last hundred years, the, the church has accused the world of all kinds of things. The church has accused the world of, of, of a conspiracy theory to destroy the credibility of the Bible. I was raised, as I've told you, in the second dark ages of the church, the 1980s, right? Some of you are with me in this. And as a young man, I had influences in my life, incredible, incredible men of God, but they were all telling me kind of the same thing. And then I had a, a preacher that I liked. His sermons were kind of in my head by the hundreds. And, and what it fueled was this sense that the world is aggressively trying to destroy the Bible and trying to destroy Christianity. I was told that from the time I started my faith as a 15-year-old. And I believed that the world was out to get us, out to destroy the Bible, out to destroy Christianity. That was in, in my heart. And, and when I discovered later that that, in fact, isn't really the case, it was a crisis moment. But this idea that, that we are over here and we are right and everybody else is wrong, everybody else is terrible, everyone else is out to get us, it's a us versus them culture that has emerged in the church. And it's awkward. It results in separation as well. We need to cluster away from the world. And so in many church environments, hey, 
get out from the world. The world is, is, is evil. The world is corrupt. The world is in decline. The world is in a moral abyss. The world will be destroyed soon. Get out of it and rest here in this little comfortable environment we call the church where we all nod our heads to the same thing. We all keep repeating the same thing to each other. That's awkward. Again, J.P. Moreland puts it this way. We are all always encouraged to use our intellect in our jobs, buying a house or healthcare or personal budgets. I mean, look around, you guys are brilliant. You are the most brilliant people in the room right now. Look at you, it's awesome. You're smart, right? You're smart, you're engaged in business, you're engaged in, in the marketplace, you're engaged in your home and your neighborhood and, and you're very thoughtful. I bet you use your brain at least twice this morning for something, right? We're smart, thoughtful people, but when you come to church, the brain has to get shut off and we sit down, pastor tells us what to believe. Oh, that sounds good, that sounds good. That reminds me of what I was raised in. Yeah. Oh, that doesn't remind me of what I was raised in. Oh boy, I was challenged by something. That pastor so-and-so and pastor so-and-so just said something that I doesn't feel right to me, therefore it must be wrong. Therefore, I might even consider leaving. Somebody left the church last week saying, I'm leaving the church, we're done because you're a socialist, bye. Don't respond. <laughs> socialist, I'm not a socialist. <laughs> and I did respond because that's crazy. And I said, well, you know, with all respect, why would you say I'm a socialist? That's simply not true. Well, you're raising all this money to help people in need. We're out. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I really, sometimes it just gets utterly exhausting. And this happens all the time in the church because of an unwillingness to be a learning community. So here's the question that we will uh, end our time with is, how can we recover the Christian mind? How can we recover the Christian mind? How can we get it back, right? How can we start being a learning community again? How can we start embracing the sciences and philosophy and education? Not that all of us have to have, you know, doctorate degrees in philosophy, but how can we just be thoughtful? A few things to consider. The first and I think most importantly is humility. We need humility. And I'm telling you, when I first started my faith as a 15-year-old, from the time I was 15 to the time I was 25, I was an arrogant little booger snot. I mean, for real difficult to be around in retrospect. I thought I was awesome to be around then. But 15 to 25 years old, just an arrogant booger snot. I just, you know, I, 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 I learned all these things from my teachers. They were all kind of saying the same thing, kind of heading the same direction. And so everybody else was, was bad. You know, we accused those who didn't believe like we did and we separated ourselves. And so it felt good to convince ourselves that we were the right ones. And so when I got into ministry way too early at about 18 years old, I just did the same thing. And then I ran up against a, a wall where I realized, you know what, through some of the things I was reading, through some of the things I was experiencing, I, I went to a school that was the worst of the worst in terms of unthinking. I went to an unthinking school for a little bit. And I saw that this whole world that was created, the whole world that I was in, in some part was a fraud. Not intentionally, well-meaning people, but it was a fraud. A lot of what we believe simply wasn't true, was never true. But you keep saying it over and over again, it starts to feel true. So I, I, I came to this point of humility. For me, it was humiliation, where I realized I don't know much. And I'm telling you that right now. Your pastor at Rancho Church doesn't know much. Some of you thinking I have known that for a very long time. I don't know much. The people that taught me didn't know much either. There's not a single person on this earth who knows much. 
There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of ideas out there. There's not one person alive who knows all that much. I don't care how brilliant they are. To come to that point of humility is so valuable, right? Because it allows us to stop putting ourselves in camps and accusing and separating and, and awkward. But it says, you know what? I don't know much, and so I need a community of people around me to help walk a journey towards truth. To walk a journey towards truth. And the victory is to walk a journey towards truth. Not to say, ah, I have the truth and these hundreds of things. I'm right, you're wrong, this is black, this is is white. I am the bearer, I am the keeper of all knowledge, you know. But it's a humble walk in a journey of truth. 1 Peter 5.5 says this, all of you, I love this, everybody pay attention. All of you, clothe yourselves, wrap yourselves, head to toe with humility because God is opposed to the proud but shows favor to the humble. God really works in a humble community. I don't know much. So I need people around me to help grow and learn and discover. Secondly, don't confuse interpretation with truth. This is so, so valuable. Do not confuse interpretation with truth. Here's something that is, I think, objectively true. Both science and the Bible require interpretation. Both science and Bible study require interpretation. Is that fair? There's data that comes from the science world. Data comes from the science world. Scientists have to interpret that data to come up with conclusions. Science tends, for the most part, to hold their interpretations pretty loosely. Here's the data that's coming in. Here's what I think it means for now. It could change as more data comes in, right? Bible study ought to be the same thing. Data comes from the Bible to us. The data that comes from the Bible is is in our hands. It's right here in front of me. The data that comes from the Bible is very, very good copies of very good copies of very good copies of very good translations of the original Bible, the original writings, right? 66 of them. We can trust the Bible that we have in our hand as a good good copy and a good translation of the original. Our Bible is trustworthy in that respect. So from the Bible comes data as people were inspired by God to write about God. And so there's data that comes in from the Bible and there's data that comes in from science. And we have the wonderful privilege, given a brain, to interpret that to interpret the Bible, to interpret science. But here's the reality. Our interpretation isn't truth. Our interpretation isn't truth. Interpretation is often a momentary stopping place in a never-ending journey toward the truth. It takes humility to admit that. My interpretation isn't truth. The interpretation of my Bible teachers isn't truth. It's a momentary stopping place on a journey towards truth. It's a powerful and humbling place to be. And I'm telling you, it's very enriching. I'm gonna give you an example of how this works out. Let's just pretend this room, this box here, is the entire earth. Six, 700 years ago, the church and science interpreted the data the exact same way. Here we are on the earth. We look to the left, we look to the right, look to the front, look to the back. It seems like it's a flat earth, right? Look around. This is the earth. It's flat earth. That would be our observation. So the church interpreted the Bible to say flat earth. Science looked around by observation, says looks flat to me. So the church and science were the same in the interpretation. The church raises up incredible scientists, right? And a few of those scientists, Copernicus, Galileo, they start this fancy pantsy math and developing these telescopes. And the data that's now coming in says the earth isn't flat, the earth is in fact a sphere. And it's a sphere that is revolving around the sun along with many other planets. And the church says, nuh-uh, that's not true. Bible says 
that's not true. Well, the Bible never says the earth is flat, but the interpretation of the Bible says the earth is flat. And so the interpretation of the Bible and the interpretation of science was off for 200 years until the church finally apologized and changed their doctrine. Interpretations aren't the truth. Interpretations change. Third, sober thinking. Sober thinking. We're called to be humble, not confuse our interpretations with truth, and sober thinking. That's why I brought this beer. This may or may not have come from my fridge this morning. Brought this beer. Now, uh, we may know what it's like to be intoxicated, either personally or because you're super spiritual, other people you've seen, writings you know, that you have read. We know what it's like to be intoxicated, right? And intoxication confuses the brain, slows down the brain, kills some brain cells, right? And, and the way people are when they are intoxicated is essentially mindless. No fewer than six times in the, in the New Testament, God calls us to be sober-minded. Do not be intoxicated by the thoughts that are out there confusing uh, critical and sane thinking. So what are the things that cloud our thinking? What are the intoxicants that cloud our thinking? Watch the news for five minutes and you will find out. Politics intoxicates the brain. We cannot think reasonably when we're high on politics. You know, I'm a liberal Democrat. I'm a conservative Republican. I'm going to get high on my politics. I'm going to get passionate about that. And I'm not thinking reasonably when I am intoxicated by politics. I'm going to be accusing and I'm not going to be thinking rationally. You know, with issues of the day. For example, I'm with Dr. Ford. I'm with Judge Kavanaugh, right? And there's such a passion about that. And we're splitting and, and there's sides. And we're intoxicated by current issues. And so we're not thinking soberly. We can be intoxicated by religion and specific religious doctrines. I was always told Genesis 1 is literal interpretation, six days, 6,000 years old. And I was told Revelation this. And I mean, we just get just high on things that divide us and, and our mind slows and we're not really able to think through things carefully. Listen to what God's word says. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything, bring it all in, test it all, hold on to what is good. By implication, reject what's bad. But let's be a learning community. Let's not be afraid. Let's not be scared out there, right? There's a lot of great ideas that are being shared. People with great thoughtful ideas about the Bible, thoughtful ideas about science, thoughtful ideas about philosophy and education. Let's be reasonable. Let's bring this all in. Let's test everything and hold to what is good. Here's how I'll rephrase this. Be cautious, but unafraid to change what you believe. It's okay to change what you believe. Can a pastor say that in church? Yes. This is what the Bible says. Test everything and hold on to what is good. In other words, as data comes in, as thoughts come in, test them. Test them in God's word. Test them in, in, in the reality of science and philosophy and pragmatically test everything. Hold on to the good. That means it's okay to change. It really is. I don't have the same faith I had when I was 25. From 15 to 25, it was the same because I fell in line and just was intoxicated on the theology of my day. When I ran into this, this crisis moment, I had to realize, you know, you arrogant booger snot, walk a road of humility. Walk a road of not confusing your inter interpretations with the truth. Walk a road of sober thinking and, and, you know, still 
trying that today. I haven't arrived anywhere, but it's a journey of discovering truth together. Sober thinking. And then finally, and we're done, fully engage the conversations of the world. This world is full of incredible conversations. It is a good time to be alive. I am so grateful I am alive right now because what's happening on this planet is exciting. The world is, is getting together to solve the problems of this world. The world is getting together to solve hunger, to cure diseases, to see to it that the extremely poor are provided for, to change systemic uh, uh, situations in, in governments and in cultures, to see to it that all men, women, and children are treated with dignity and treated equally. We are solving problems of, of a lack of education. Technology is flooding the world that is bringing so much good to so many people. And we're talking about globally a paradigm of love and service, as we talked about a few weeks ago. A paradigm of love and service is taking over the globe radically and quickly. As long as the church kind of mindlessly separates ourselves and keeps accusing the world, we're not gonna be engaged in the conversations of the world. And we are the ones, through Jesus Christ, who came up with the paradigm of love and service. That's Jesus. The church took that paradigm and the church moved it on, on this world, but now we're separated over here, largely in a mindless community. We can change that. Be fully engaged in the conversations of the world. Acts 17, 16 says this. The apostle Paul is moving into Athens and he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols and the Greek idols were creating so much abuse and hurt in the cities. Paul saw that, he was grieved. So what did he do? He reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day to day. The apostle Paul was engaged in the dialogue of the day everywhere in the church, outside of the church, in the marketplace, everywhere, fully engaged. And so I wanna encourage us, wherever you are in your journey of faith, make it a mindful one. Make it a humble journey. Don't confuse your interpretation of the Bible with the truth. Don't, don't, don't confuse your, your upbringing as the truth. Rest your life on the truth and learn as you go. And what is the truth? What is the truth? What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In the Christian mind, in the Christian worldview, the truth is a person, not a position. I wanna say that again. In the Christian mind, in the Christian worldview, the truth is a person, not a position. Sadly, the Christian church has been reduced to a series of doctrines when the reality, we rest our lives on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, taught of God as a heavenly father who loves us, a good God, a good father who loves us, eager to save, eager to forgive, not to condemn. Jesus shared that the heavenly father is a God of love and he wants us to understand his unconditional love, forgiving us by grace, considering us perfect sons and perfect daughters of God by grace, not by anything we've done. Jesus left us with one commandment, the commandment to love one another as we are loved by God. He then gave his life as the ultimate act of love, taking the suffering, the shame, the sin of the world upon himself and dying to it all, forgiving the sins of the world, rising again from the dead to give us new and eternal life and giving us his spirit to bind us together as the body of Christ. We together, the church, are the living, breathing body of Christ, advancing the cause of Christ, until the kingdom of the earth becomes the kingdom of heaven. That's the truth on which we rest our life. That's the unchanging truth. 
And the rest of it, we're growing together in a learning community. Embracing God's word, embracing the sciences, embracing philosophy, embracing education, engaged in the affairs of this world and the discussions of this world towards the very good plans that God has for us. And that journey begins by faith. I wanna close in a prayer of faith, and as I do, some of you might be here as skeptics. We're a wide open door church. People come as skeptics, they come as unbelievers, they come as anti-Christian. I mean, I've had some wonderful friends of mine that just hate the church and they enjoy being a part of Rancho. It begins by faith, faith in Jesus, not faith in a religion, not faith in dogma, faith in Jesus. That can begin for you today. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the truth. The truth who is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth, the full expression of the heavenly Father. He came down to share your full heart for this world that you love so much. He came both to love and to share love and to, and to model love, particularly as he gave his life on a cross. He lays his life down to take the sin, the shame, the scorn of the world upon himself and die for it all to forgive us. And by his act of love, we can know that we are forgiven because Jesus took our sin, our shame, the penalty of our sin upon himself. We are forgiven. We are your dearly loved children that you declare holy, blameless, and perfect in your sight. That's how much you love us. Jesus rose again from the dead to give victory of love over all and to bring new hope and new life and eternal life to us in this world that you love. We place our hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Our life is founded on the truth, the person and work of Christ your son. In his name we pray. And everybody said, amen.